from Hyama Japan. This is Frank Ling, and you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and the way it affects our daily lives. Coming up in today's show, we'll be talking about education for climate change. Also joining us is Professor Kentaka Aruga, who will talk about the population bomb. So stay tuned for all this, plus the Grokron 5000. So stay right here. Welcome back to the program. Well, with me right now are colleagues from the Institute for Global Environmental Strategies here in Hayama, Japan. Uh, with us right now is Bob Kip, Taco Kobashi, and Iku Kikuzawa, and we're going to talk a little bit about education for climate change. You visit some of these communities which are already experiencing the effects of climate change. Do you think because they're experiencing it, they're more aware and they're willing to take action? That's a tricky question to answer broadly because the way climate change is conceptualized really varies, as was mentioned before, like based on um, their income levels or economic development levels, and even based on um, like the indigenous cultural context. For example, in Vietnam, when they try it, most of the climate change activity at the local level is being driven by NGOs, particularly international NGOs. So when I spoke with a Vietnam, Vietnamese NGO about climate change, there, there's still a bit of skepticism about is climate change a real issue? Is it even being caused by emissions? So there's still some skepticism about whether it's actually real. They just Some of the explanations I asked, I said, how do you explain the changing weather patterns? They said, well, maybe Vietnamese weather is changing, and we don't know the cause of it. So we don't know exactly why it's changing here relative to why it's changing other places. And there's just based on like, education and the, even within the government, asked, is there demand for materials on educating people about climate change? And they said, no, not really. In contrast, that was Singapore, where part of their national development plan is based on sustainable development and basically finding a way to make a profit from climate change through education and technical trade. So, okay, even if they're not concerned about mitigation, but you know, they see their coastlines eroding, don't they think they have to do some sort of adaptation measures? Oh, it's a huge huge approach right now is basically adaptation. Mm-hmm. And they, what they've done, say in Vietnam, because obviously they have a huge um, delta area, is they're looking at capacity development for livelihoods, which will help the fish farmers or the shrimp farmers to adapt to the changes of climate change in terms of livelihood development. So that's that would definitely be their main approach. Kiksawasan, you work with sustainable development in Asia. What was your perspective on I went to Vietnam this month, and... Uh, my my case study was on the wildlife protection, not necessarily climate change. But I was seeking the relation linkage uh, between the uh, wildlife protection and the climate change. And I, I asked a similar question to the uh, organizations, NGOs. But actually, they are not so aware of the, or they don't know the linkage of, uh, for example, uh, forest degradation and climate change. Rather, uh, they focus on the illegal hunting in the forest, forestry. Actually, Kiksawasan and I spoke to some of the same people in Vietnam. And what I saw with their approach to climate change was 
global warming and climate change were seen as one and the same, and they're integrated with other aspects of environmental protection or just environmental change or, and environmentalism. So, for example, in a textbook about the environment, which a lot of it focused on animal protection, wildlife protection, was buried, buried within that book was the, their approach to climate change. So whereas in Singapore or even in Thailand, you might have a, or a more developed country like America or Canada, you might have a program on climate change versus in other contexts where they haven't quite jumped on the climate change bandwagon yet, it's still conceptualized in terms of other environmental issues. So as you may have seen. Climate change, you know, there are many things we have to do. And uh, if we look at the developing countries, uh, they are actually the per capita GHG emission is uh, quite low compared to the developed countries. So the, in terms of uh, mitigation efforts, uh, what uh, really have to be done is coming mostly coming from the developed country right now. So the uh, probably for the mitigation, it's better to talk in, in the, maybe you know, in Japan how we really did it here. And uh, in developing countries, uh, they have uh, they also it's better to think about how to really make uh, low carbon growth, economical growth. But uh, you know the their economies are still uh, really need to develop and they need to uh, satisfy the basic needs. So I think it is really uh, somehow different perspective. And we were just talking about education for climate change with Bob Kip, Takuro Kobashi, and Kiku Ikuzawa. In a few moments, Professor Kentaka Ruga joins us to talk about uncertainties in the global population projection. So stay right there. Welcome back to the program. The 20th century has been marked by a dramatic increase in the human population from just a billion to over 6 billion right now. Many scientists agree that we may be hitting a population bomb, that we are reaching the limits of the Earth's natural resources, and that we're facing imminent disaster. These are the so-called Neo-Malthusians. On the other hand, the group known as the Revisionists believes that humanity will be able to overcome these challenges with the right amount of engineering. 
Uh, well, joining us today to talk about this global problem is Professor Kentaka Ruga from the Ishikawa Prefectural University, and he'll be telling us a little bit about how these two groups came to different conclusions, even with the very same data. Uh, Professor Ruga, thank you so much for joining us here today. Yeah, thank you very much for the introduction. So you're certainly working on a very global topic.、Uh, what drew you to this question? Well, because every environmental problem, the basis is the effects of human activity on the environment. So the simple idea is, if there's no human beings in the world, there will be no environmental problem. That's very obvious. So there's very important discussion that is the current population an optimum. There's an argument that's called the optimum world global population. And so, what is the current research along this line on the optimal population? And then I found there's two different scientists thinking totally saying the different thing. You mean two different groups of scientists? Two different group of scientists. Like the global warming now, most scientists agree that the problem do exist. Although there's still a very small number of、um, scientists that's still opposing against the global warming idea as well. But for the population debate, there's still no、um, agreement, even among the. So scientists doesn't have reached consensus. If we look、uh, in past history and we look at how different civilizations rose and then you know, fell apart, some of those were due to a lack or competition、mm-hmm. for resources. But in every of those cases, they can be localized to their region or their country.、Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas today, we're looking at an entirely global problem where all of humanity is sharing the world's resources, and everybody is striving to have standards of living similar to what the U.S. or the Europeans are enjoying right now.、Mm-hmm. Do you see this situation as different from past situations of you know resource limitations? So actually, what's interesting is why it's the pessimists are called neo-Malthusians are that it is also the first this problem argument. Have started from Malthus in I, I forgot the exact year, but before World War Two, and he's the one who said if this human population continues to increase, there will be food scarcity problem, and that's how it started. But what's interesting is because when the World War Two happened, the population started to decrease, and of course, also many people would agree that. If there's a big, big war, the population will automatically decrease, so there will be no problem. And so, during the World War Two, this population debate declined, and there wasn't much、um, debate going on. But after World War Two, when the population started to increase again, and the human lifestyle changed dramatically, then again this、um, discussion started to heat up again. And now, of course, the lifestyle change is very, very big, and many. <coughs> Pessimists think like the Chinese people start living like the American way. Obviously, there's no way for the resources to meet this demand of changing lifestyle of the large population in China or India. That certainly sounds like a very、uh, a, you know dire circumstances where we're certainly going to hit a wall if we haven't hit it already.、Mm-hmm. Can you explain how the revisionists or、mm-hmm. the optimists feel that they can overcome this challenge? I'm not sure if it's really really correct. But the current seven billion population in the world, if they're all densed in one area, I heard all the human world population can still fit 
in like the size of LA. And so in, in terms of space where human beings can fit, obviously 7 billion at this moment is not big. And that's one simple explanation. If you do the calculations and you assume that each person occupies two cubic feet, right, right. it only occupies half a cubic exactly. mile. Right, right. Like that, that kind of calculation. And then so in that physical sense, What's different is, of course, you have to think about how to feed these people, and that's when it brings a big problem. Do you believe the problem is, is it there's not enough food, or is there just bad distribution of food and the energy it takes to create it? Yeah, that's the main argument. So the pessimists go to the real physical scarcity problem, and optimist thinks it's just a distributional problem. And that's always this um, argument about hunger as well. Like the pessimists argue there's a hunger, obviously people in facing hunger, but optimist or from the economist types of view, it could be just a transportational problem because obviously there is always rich people having enough food to eat and lots of food has been wasted. So that's very obvious thing, I guess. So the fact that 30% of Americans are obese suggests that it's just a matter of mm -hmm. redistributing the energy and the food to solve the hunger problem. Yeah, that's one, one reasoning for of the um, revisionist, right? I see. These two groups have very divergent views on this matter. Uh, is there any points that they agree on? You're right. The points they look at is very different. But so the data they have for like the number of people facing hunger would be the same. But the way they argue is totally different. So like the pessimists argue from the actual food to feed these people. But I think they do agree there is still enough food for every people to eat. But the pessimists argue that um, there do exist poverty or mm. hunger and people who can't, who doesn't have access to physical need or, or food. However, the optimists think so there is enough food, so it's just a distributional problem. But the big problem is the how the food they say that they have enough is based on basic, really limit minimum um, calories that is needed to to live. But the food problem is not just the basic necessary calories that they need to consume to live, but it's part of luxury. And of course, many people don't want to just have a cup of rice every day or just one bread every day. Or Food is more about luxury and to enjoy. And in that sense, so it's, I think it does come to the how you want to eat and how you want to live. And if you do want to eat happily or live happily, then I think it does face some resource scarcity. So this kind of more detailed argument should be set up. You mentioned that both of these groups rely on the same data and they agree that this is the correct data at this point. What further data or information would they need to be able to clarify the issues better so that they can determine if, if one theory is more appropriate or in the end maybe there's some combination of theories which are more truthfully describes the situation? For that, if they argue the status quo of the environment, then the argument would be very easy. But what they usually always argue is like the pessimists argue about something very uncertain. So I use the word real uncertainty, which the probability of the event can't be grasped. But there is a 
known fact, like the problem of biodiversity. The problem do exist, but we don't know in what kind of probability such um, event will become a very big harm to human beings. And also the optimists bring up like the technology that hasn't been developed yet. So the argument always becomes something that's already not known or some, some technology that haven't been developed yet. So that's why it becomes very difficult to argue scientifically at both sides because they both argue about something not yet certain or not yet developed. Yet when you look at how populations have mm-hmm. grown, we, we observe that in most industrialized countries, after a certain population has become wealthy and mm-hmm. educated, we see the opposite trend where the population decreases. Wouldn't that suggest that as we develop and bring everyone's standards of living up, then that in itself will be self-limiting for the population. And as a result, we will be able to not solve, but mitigate some of the effects that we're seeing with, with the population growth. Yeah, so actually every time, every year, the population forecast has been changing. I mean, it's becoming rather lower than first expected because of that, um, the developed, developed countries tend to have a lower rate of fertility rate and because of their cost to raise a child is you know, increasing, then the number of children one family can have is becoming smaller. So, of course, even for the pessimists, they do think that's a good trend. However, their idea is that even the 7 billion at this moment is already beyond the limit or still as a global level the population is increasing and even at the current um, forecast at least human global population will reach the 9 billion population so then that does still cause environmental problem and it's already beyond the limit and that's the argument they're arguing right now what have been some of your own findings yeah I still haven't originally so I do want to in the future try to find my own theory, but most of my study has been just on um, trying to organize the debates among these pessimists and optimists and try to argue that it's just how they think about the nature is different between the pessimists and optimists. Pessimists think the nature problem can't be controlled by human beings like the biodiversity problem we don't know how that can, because the, the biodiversity problem can cause problem in the future, not at present, maybe the destruction of the biodiversity might be not big problem, but in the future it could cause big, big damage, and that's uh, their argument. However, like the pessimist thinks from the human-oriented side that still the humans can control these things, like even they can create new genetically modified plant or gen- so using the human technology, they think they can even create new new species out of the technology. So they think that nature is controllable, and I think that's a big difference between these schools. Obviously, with such difference in thought, that would also inform a different policy point of view. From a neo-Malthusian's point of view, what would their solution be for big issues like global warming? So one thing, some really neo-Malthusians, as Malthus thought, should think that they really need to control the number of human beings and like 
So they need to educate the women to think more about their birth control and decrease the number of children directly. And also another thing the pessimists think is to try to really solve, control the level of human activity that really harms the environment. And that's their basic point. And then the revisionists would assume then that there should not be any limits to controlling the population, that somehow the society will somehow take care of itself and adapt and be able to direct nature in a way that keeps everyone you know, living in a safe condition. Yeah, of course, because like the extreme revisionists would think if we can even move to space, there would be really no limit for population or technology. And as, techno- as human activities, um, they can do whatever they want without limit. The speed of innovation is will be increasing also as well. So I think the revisionists believe there shouldn't be no limit for whatever human being wants to do. And if you really think about the whole universe, maybe, yeah, it's easy to believe we, have, we can still develop a lot. So we can have a population of 20 or even 30 billion people. Yeah, yeah. Of course, there will be different problems. But So they really think it's just all problems that the pessimists think the suggest is just a distributional or economic problem rather than the population problem. That was very insightful thought on this very challenging issue. Uh, are, are there any last words you'd like to share about this topic or uh, research that you're working on? So if there's any other researchers, because in the future I would want to find out what the optimum is by myself using my original model or original theory. So I would be happy to work with some other researchers who are interested in this topic. Yeah, my university is agriculture-related university, and I'm specialized in agriculture economics. So in terms of food production, how the population of mom will change or maybe food, water, soil. I think those are big main issues that should be thought about when you think about the population optimum or the land use and that kind of inputs would be very important, I think, when you think about the population optimum. I think that how to put the innovation or how the economy will develop should be put outside of the model when we think of um, that such problem. But for the first step, just from without thinking about any innovation or technological development or economic development, then I think it is possible to find out the optimum based on that kind of restriction. So, uh, Professor Aruga, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. And we were just talking to Professor Aruga on the uncertainties of the population projection. In a few moments, the Grokatron 5000, so stay right there. Welcome back to the program. Well, Professor Yurga has kindly agreed to join us on this week's Grokatron 5000. Welcome back to the show. Thank you very much. Well, this week's question is Neo-Malthusian or Revisionist? And here are five topics, and we want to know if they are Neo-Malthusian or Revisionist. All right, subject number one, population researcher Paul Ehrlich. Revisionist or Neo-Malthusian? 
So he's Neo Malthusian. Very, very uh, popular. Very famous Neo Malthusian. <laughs> okay, so he's a pessimist too. That was a、yeah, very easy question. <laughs> okay,、yeah. subject number two this year's Rio Plus 20 sustainability conference.、Mm, I would say Neo Malthusian. I would say most environmentalists or most people who think environmental problem is an existing problem maybe could be recognized as Neo Malthusian. All right, subject number three、mm-hmm. uh, New Malthusian or revisionists. Uh, President of the United States, Barack Obama.、Mm, I would say he's a revisionist because, I mean, most American presidents, I would say, they have to think about the economy, how to develop the US economy. So it's a very revisionist idea. And I, I didn't say in the, in the main program, but the population increase usually contributes to economic development. So、mm. I think, <laughs> in that sense, presidents. Thinks increasing population is always an important issue. So I would say revisionist. Okay, subject number four the country of Japan, new Malthusian or revisionist? Because even in terms of government, they're always revisionist. Because Japanese government, always same as the US president or any other country's government, they think increasing population is important. And if you think simply like the army force or any army or any marine forces or those forces is reliant on human population. So the more human beings there are in one country in terms of army force, the more power that country will have. So I think in that sense, revisionist. But many people, however, the Japanese citizens, Some people are now、um, Malthusian because we think we don't like the. If you live in Tokyo, there are just too many people all over. And like the, when you get into. The Japan is very famous for the crammed train. And when you go to school or work, every people are stuck in the train and they travel. So, in that sense, we think it's overpopulated. However, the government, it's always revisionist. So, is it the projection that Japan's population will drop by one third by 2050? So, for some citizens, maybe they love that because they can enjoy more playing golf or playing tennis or going to parks. But in terms of as a force, power of country, declining population is a huge problem. And I think Japan is like the second among the rates of population de- de- decreasing. Next to Russia. It's a big problem for the country.、Yeah. Okay, and finally,、mm-hmm. subject number five、uh, the Star Wars universe. Is it revisionist or Neo Malthusian? I would say, I think, re- revisionist. They have to be. They always have to think about how to increase their force or how to have more human beings. But what's interesting that Star Wars world is you have to think about aliens, not just human being population. So maybe the population of the whole species or whole living organism. And I would say having more living o r g a n i s m in that Star Wars universe is a good thing. So I would say revisionist. <laughs> Great. Well, th- thank you so much for your insights, Professor Aruga. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much for the nice questions, too. And once again, we were just talking to Professor Kentaka Aruga. From Ishikawa University. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. If you want to contact us here, you can email us at groks at science.net. 
Make sure you also see us on the web at www.brox.net and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Stay tuned right here for more music. <laughs>